Hey friends, Greg Kokel here and welcoming you to the show. And I am still in northern Wisconsin pounding away at my manuscript and I have never put in so much time. It feels like uh, writing. Usually when I'm up here, I put in three or four hours of writing, and then I go play for a while. I fix some things at the cabin, or I get a wet a line, get my boat out, and catch a fish or two. Not this time around. I'm just hammering away. And uh, slowly but surely, finishing the manuscript, the book is called Street Smarts. And the subtitle, well, that's the working title, and I hope they accepted it. It's under it because that concept of street smarts is all built into the text, so uh, it's going to be hard to change all that. Subtitle is Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. And uh, that may sound familiar to you, some of you, many of you, the questions part. Yes, this is an extension of the, uh, we'll call it the Tactics franchise. I don't know, two books on tactics. That's not exactly a franchise, but it sounds kind of cool. So this is an extension of the third use of Columbo, and that is using questions to make a point. And uh, in this particular case, the point is to expose a weakness or a flaw. So I'm working through a number of topics and uh, the kinds of things that Christians are challenged on, like uh, the Bible or the gospel, Jesus, uh, or the person of Jesus or the existence of Jesus or atheism or abortion and uh, working through the issues so you understand exactly what the problems are with those issues and how, uh, how I go about, in a sense, answering them. And then I offer sample dialogues that will allow you to kind of get started. There are ramp up into a conversation. You're opening questions, and then your key questions throughout this dialogue to help to to, to demonstrate the problems with the point of view your friend is offering against the Christian view, and hopefully allow you to have more productive conversations. So it's a kind of general apologetics book on the one hand, but it's got the tactical angle as well. So that's all. Um, that's what I've been banging away here on almost of the month, actually, and I've got another week and a half uh, to get everything finished. It's going to be tight, but uh, working on it. Uh, just want to remind you, we're still in August, and um, that means this is our Be One of the 100 month, looking for 100 new strategic partners, uh, the backbone of our enterprise, our support team at Stand to Reason. Many, many, many people give to us, and it's so satisfying to know that you believe enough in what we're doing and how we're helping you and other people that you would want to pony up with a gift, and we always appreciate that. But there is a team of people who are who are regulars. They're locked in. They're monthly committed people. Those are our strategic partners, and, and it's a special group of people. Uh, we have a special Facebook for you. We give you a special discount on uh, online for books and, and the like. And um, what we do every August is we invite you to be part of the team, and we're shooting for 100. And usually we make that mark or a little beyond, and uh, this year we're right on our numbers. We're about two-thirds of the way through the month, and we're at 80 who have signed up and gone to our website at str.org forward slash partner and said, yeah, I want to help out. I want to be a strategic partner for $25 a month or more, and people vary in the amounts based on what they want to give. Um, but if you do that, become a strategic partner this month. If you're one of the 100, uh, we're going to give you a gift. We're going to send you a, uh, a link to the videos for last season's reality 
from chaos to clarity. And it was a fabulous season, just an absolutely fabulous season. I'm not sure exactly which one you'll be getting, that is, which of the six locations uh, that that we had the event at. But uh, it, as we moved through the locations, it all just got better and better as we got more um, used to our pattern and our talks and, and the presentations and the like. Incidentally, this, uh, let's see, in a couple of weeks, I'm looking at my I'm looking for my notes, which I never have right where they're supposed to be for this. Um, oh, here it is. Okay, in, in Orange County, our reality, September 23rd and 24th. I don't know what the numbers are, but we are expecting to be sold out because we have been sold out pretty much the last few times that we've had it uh, in Orange County at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and uh, even with the restrictions that the state of California has imposed, we still sold out to those restrictions. A thousand in the main sanctuary last year and a thousand in the gym. Now, that made it hard for people last year, I understand, because you had to wait in line lines to get in every new session to get into the main sanctuary. None of that this year. We're really, we're embarrassed about that. It was the best we could do given the liabilities the state put on us. But uh, it's going to be uh, wide open. 2,000 people in the main auditorium, and uh, if you sign up early enough, uh, you get that. And if you sign up later, after the first 2,000, I don't know what the numbers are right now, um, but because uh, I'm not I'm in Wisconsin, so I don't have access to all that information. But um, if you sign up after the 2,000, you'll be in the gym. But you'll get all the breakout sessions, and in the gym is great. You've got a big screen. You're going to look on the big screen anyway in the main auditorium. So we just like you to consider this because it's, it's this particular reality is um, is focusing in on the vitally important issue of deconstruction and deconversion. Okay, lots of Christians getting hammered by challenges that they don't know how to respond to. And this is causing many to leave Christianity, and we're giving the answers for that. All right, so I just realized I'm doing two commercials at once. All right. Um, let me finish up the second one that I interrupted the first one with, and that is if you want to find out more about reality, not just coming up in uh, September on uh, September 23rd and 24th in Orange County at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, but in Seattle October 14th and 15th and in Minneapolis November 11th and 12th. That's the uh, the fall version. In the spring, we'll have uh, Dallas February 24th and 25th. Philly, March 24th and 25th, Augusta, April 21st and 22nd. All the information is on the website, realityapologetics.com, realityapologetics.com. Go there, sign up, be there. You, you, it's a fabulous experience, and virtually everybody that goes comes back saying, we want to come back next year and bring more people, and that's been the pattern. Okay, If you want to be a strategic partner and be one of the 100 Go to str.org forward slash partner and sign up. str.org forward slash partner and sign up there. And then you'll get all the perks normally associated with being a strategic partner and some special things we have in store for you this particular time around. Since you're signing up as a new strategic partner, you're going to be one of the 100 uh, this August. Now, I mentioned that I've been writing quite a bit. And um, I've been going over 
challenges to Christianity that I've written on in the past in different ways, whatever, and I'm reorganizing all of those thoughts and piecing them to, together in a in a, a coherent whole, basically, bringing all these things together, like different things I've written about atheism and the arguments against atheism and addressing the challenges of atheists. This is all coming together, and actually it's come together in three chapters, because the first chapter I'm dealing on atheism, that is, I'm dealing with distractions that are thrown out by atheists. Um, and then uh, the next one, I'm talking about arguments for God. Now, one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God, in my view, and the one that is really my favorite, some of you know this, and I'll tell you why shortly, you'll see why, is the moral argument for God. And I just read recently that this is actually Bill Craig's, I don't know if he said it was his favorite, but he thinks it's one of the best arguments. Now, Bill Craig, William Lane Craig, the philosopher, Christian philosopher and debater, is uh, well known for his Kalam cosmological argument, which isn't his. It's an old argument that he has revivified and um, and really worked out to something like perfection, answering all the challenges. So this is what he's known for. But he said he thinks the moral argument is really powerful, and this is my same view as well, because I think the moral argument is powerful since it turns out that it trades for the strength of one of the uh, one of the premises of the argument on the real problem of evil. And people think, well, the problem of evil is a challenge against theism. It's not a challenge against theism. It's a challenge against atheism. It's one of the best arguments for God and against atheism. It's, it's exactly the opposite of what people think. Now, of course, the way this works is, is there the syllogism, uh, the line of reasoning is actually quite simple. And it goes like this. If there is no God, then there is no objective morality. And the claim there that God is necessary to ground real morality, the kind of morality out there that is adequate to make sense out of the problem of evil. Because if there is no objective morality, then there, that there is no evil. <laughs> Not out there. All there are things that we call evil because we don't like them, but that's relativism, right? And, uh, and the, the first premise, there is no objective morality without God. The second one is there is objective morality, and that's what is secured by the problem of evil because everybody knows there's a problem, and this is what I trade on. And then the conclusion follows, of course, therefore there is a God. Okay, that's a modus tollens argument. It's a, it's, a, it's a valid form of argumentation. And if the premises are true, the argument goes through. Okay, now what's interesting is that atheists used to acknowledge that's the case, at least until recently. They characteristically agreed with the first premise that um, if there is no God, there is no morality. And there is no God. <laughs> And there, so therefore, there is no morality. Good thing. They celebrated this kind of thing. They understood the calculus, and they were willing to live with the consequences or benefits, as many of them saw it, because uh, this opened the door for them to be their own people. And, and Jerry, Jeremy Rifkin, atheist, celebrated atheist, put it this way. Now, I just want you to listen to these words. 
We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It's our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. You see the reference to the ending of the Lord's Prayer there. But it's an unusual boast. It's a celebration. The irony is that when other people act that way towards them— Oh, they don't feel so good about it. I mean, this is the this this is the mentality of the 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 um, communist totalitarian dictators that are responsible for the greatest carnage the world has ever known in terms of body count. They they uh, they are not conforming to a set of pre existing cosmic rules. They make the rules. They establish the parameters of reality. They are responsible to nothing outside of themselves. And you can see I'm just paraphrasing Rifkin here now. But uh, curiously, though, though there are many atheists that are like that, um, times have changed. Now they want to be siding with the moral objectivists. They want to take the moral high road. They want to be seen in that way. And um, and what they'll say is that that first premise that if there is no God, there is morality, no morality? Let me back up and say it again. If there is no God, there is no morality there. That's right. It's false. That's what they say. We can still be moral without God. And that's why there were billboards for a while, I think, in England that said, no God, no problem. Be good for goodness sake. Or are you good without God? Millions are. And the point there is clear. It's that morality in no way depends on belief in God. All right? And since these atheists don't believe in God and are still good people, then it's clear to them that their lack of belief in God bears no—has no bearing on their ability to be good people. Okay? Now— I, I I can't go into the, the full argument about this, but I, I want to respond at least to Christopher Hitchens's challenge. And Hitchens's challenge was was simply that name me one good thing that you can do, you theist, as a theist that I can't do as an atheist. You believe in God and do all these good things because you believe in God. I don't believe in God, and I can do exactly the same things. So obviously, he reasons, it's possible to be good without God or good without belief in God, and people put it in different ways. But I'm going to make a distinction between those two things in a minute because the distinction is really important. On their view— that belief in God doesn't add anything. Um, they might appeal to Darwinism. I'm not going to go into that right now, but uh, Darwinism provides an explanation for us getting our genes into the next generation more effectively using morality. What I want to do is I want to speak principally right now before I get to the callers, and I see the, they've all queued up, and I'm really glad to see that. I want to talk to 
uh, to the issue that that Hitchens um, raised. Okay, um, first let me acknowledge something. Uh, agree with the atheist in this regard, at least. They can mimic many things that Christians call good. All right, they can feed the poor, they can love their neighbor, they can sacrifice their lives for other other people. Um, but I want you to think about this. They can't do the thing that is the greatest good. All right, what is the greatest good? Well, what did Jesus say? Here are the two great commandments, and the first one wasn't love your neighbor. The first one was love God with your whole heart and your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So the question here is of the atheist who makes this kind of claim like Christopher Hitchens and I he, you know he made this claim so frequently. I I don't know why no one ever mentioned this to him. Now of course I haven't listened to all the debates maybe somebody did but it strikes me if he is confronted with this particular counterexample to his point he would quit making the point because it's so obvious. The one thing that Christopher Hitchens cannot do turns out to be the most important thing, morally speaking, from a Christian theist's perspective, at least from a Christian theist's perspective. He can never love God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He cannot worship the one from whom all goodness flows and who is therefore worthy of our deepest devotion and our unerring fidelity. He can't do that. Now, atheists are likely going to sniff at this particular point, but I don't want them to miss the deeper implication. At bare minimum, this response demonstrates that regardless of who is right on the God question, the entire moral project is altered significantly when God is added to the equation, especially in particular, the Christian God, because this notion of loving God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength is explicitly Christian, though it is probably inherent in the other two great monotheistic religions, um, certainly Judaism. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much love of God plays in Islam, now that they think about it. But in any event, as a Christian speaking to the challenge Hitchens raises— um, he can't do what we can do because he denies the God that deserves our love, obedience, worship, and fealty. All right? Now, there's a second point. Um, careful atheists—I'm sorry, let me back up. Careful theists do not claim that belief in God is necessary to do good, but rather that God is necessary for an act to be good in the first place. Now, that, that's an important distinction. The point is that without God, true morality has no foundation. So the question is not whether believers and non-believers can perform the same behaviors. This is the point that many atheists make. I can do the same thing that you do. Of course they can do those things. The question is whether any behavior can be good in a materialistic world bereft of God. And Hitchens' challenge completely misses 
that distinction. So I want to give you an illustration here. I think it's a great illustration to make the point. So maybe this will be sticky enough for you that when you're confronted by this challenge or this point being made by an atheist, you'll remember this illustration. All right? Imagine I handed you a copy of Vanity Fair. Okay, that's a publication that Christopher Hitchens used to publish it, write articles for. And then I asked you to read it. Could you do that? And by the way, this is what I would say to an atheist who raised the issue. Sure, they could do that. So could I. Reading scripture, I'm sorry, reading requires reading anything, (laughs) scriptures or Vanity Fair, requires only that we possess a certain set of skills that allows us to comprehend the words on the page. Notice that, strictly speaking, for this simple act of reading, no additional beliefs are necessary. You don't have to believe anything about authors or publications or editors or typesetters or newsstands or delivery boys. You don't need to believe in writers in order to be able to read, right? But you would never have a text to read unless there were writers in the first place. That's what philosophers call something that is logically prior to the others. That is, existence of authors is logically prior to the act of writing. So what's required for someone to read is different from what's required for things like magazine articles to exist in the first place. Being able to read and having something to read are different things. So if you didn't believe in authors, you could still read books. If, though, your belief was true and authors did not exist, then books would not exist. And so books turn out to be evidence for authors, no duh. And this is why readers who denied authors would sound kind of silly, right? Oh, I read in the newspaper that writers don't exist. Sounds good to me. You read in the what? (laughs) Sure, they wouldn't need to believe in authors to be good readers. They could challenge you to show them one article that you could read as a believer in writers that they couldn't read as unbelievers in writers, yet it wouldn't rescue them from the foolishness Articles are by nature the kind of thing that require authors. And objective morality is just the same. You see, the issue is not whether we can act according to a moral code or not, but rather whether we can account for the code to begin with. And denying God because you think you can be a good person without him is like dispensing with authors because you fancy yourself a first-rate reader. Morality is evidence for God in the same way that books and articles are evidence for authors. That's why when atheists ask me, if there were no God, would you still be good? It's kind of like asking, would I still be faithful to my wife if I weren't married? The question is meaningless, all right? And by the way, just for the record, if God did not exist, my actions would be different in lots of ways. I wouldn't go out and commit mass murder, but there are a lot of other things that I would do differently. Things that my, shall we say, native 
impulses drive me to that I would have no reason, morally speaking, to restrain if there were no God. All right? And that's probably true of most people. And by the way, when they get used to that idea, I mean, if I became an atheist right now, my behaviors, the patterns of behaviors that have formed my character are going, they got momentum. They're going to carry through. As time goes on, things will be changed. But if if this happened early in life and I kept living as if God did not exist, there are going to be longer-term consequences as I diverge more and more and more from a moral lifestyle that I follow now because I think I answer to somebody. And this is exactly what happens to cultures. The further and further cultures get away from belief in God— the more crazy their behavior becomes. And why, would, why wouldn't it? Where's my quote? We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It's our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves. We are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So when atheists say we can be moral without God, it's basically like saying they could be readers without writers, or they could be law-abiding citizens in a land without laws. Okay, let's take a break. we got callers coming up. We'll listen to your questions and maybe answer a few of them when I return on Stand to Reason. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. 
So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, back at you here, Greg Kokel, your host, uh, giving you a piece of my mind as I do on Tuesday afternoons, early evening, um, 4 to 6. Right now it's 6 to 8 because I'm in central time zone, but uh, you can call in if you'd like. Um, I'm not clever enough to have the phone number in front of me right now, but you'll find it on our website if you're listening at the moment, and, uh, and we can talk. Uh, that's 4 to 6 Pacific time. All right. Uh, Kyle's got the buttons. I don't have them in front of me here. So, Kyle, let's go to Conrad in Manitoba. Conrad, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks, Greg, for taking my call. Sure. Um, the reason I'm calling you is I really appreciate the way that you have a, a way of boiling things down to the lowest common denominator. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, uh, pick your brain about your thoughts, on the image of God in man. Okay, you know my response to the um, pick, pick your brain comment is I you can't pick my brain unless that? I'm a surgeon. You can't pick my brain unless you're a surgeon. <laughs> then you need a scalpel, but you can pick my mind. Okay, there we go. I, I said. Well, okay, I'll take a response. I just don't know that I need you to, <laughs> you can, to you can answer pick. the question fully. Sure. Um, so I'm going to start with two assumptions. One that uh, the image of God is not something that can be gained or lost. Uh, and the second assumption is it's not something that's held in degree. And if you have something to say on that, that's fine. But I'm, with those assumptions, uh-huh. um, I know that there's two different ways of viewing the image of God and man, and I can attack either one, depending on which one is defended. So that's kind of why I wanted to your thoughts on it. All right. Well, um, let me let me just first, res- let me respond to the first two things, and then we'll move on. Okay. I sure, agreed. Sure. The my view is that the scripture teaches that an essential part of the nature of human beings is that they are made in the image of God. Okay. There is some unique quality of humans that bears the stamp or the image of of their maker and it is built into them it is intrinsic to who they are and that's why it cannot be gained or lost because it is part of our innate humanity it isn't something humans gain later by accomplishing something being able to do something having certain abilities or whatever um it is not extrinsic it is not instrumental it's intrinsic and so therefore it follows the human everywhere the human goes and is part of the human for as long as the human is human which is as, which simply means as long as the individual is their self which is as long as they exist and it is not a degreed property you're right it is it, this is an on or off switch you don't get a little bit of more and more as time goes on because it's not instrumental it is not it is not a function of some capability that you gain or lose so i agree with with you so far in terms of the way you uh, characterize right. the image more, of God. 
Yeah, we're on the same page. Okay. Um, so my question is, I know that Dr. Uh, William Lane Craig refers to the image of God as um, our rationality, as being rational persons. Um, but on the other hand, I've also heard Dr. Um, Mike Heiser refer to it more as a status. I think Dr. Craig would call that the functional definition. I don't know what Dr. Heiser would call it or not. Right. That the, the image of God is a status. Yeah. Now, I can see the issues with it being a status. Dr. Craig would say that while you need to have the rational function to be able to operate as as God's image. You need that there to to uh, carry out that function. But on the other hand, if it's uh, to do with our rational uh, personhood, well, fetuses don't have that, and some humans don't have that if they're, you know, in an accident, and then you get into right. degrees and on and off. Right. So, yeah, if you care to respond to those. Sure, I'd love to, and I've actually, <clears throat> excuse me, talked to Mike Heiser about this particular issue um, three years oh, ago. Really? Before you, yeah, I had, uh, it was the is night that I a, met. Is that available somewhere, or was that a personal <laughs> No, no. We had dinner together, and I was sitting next to him for okay. most of the meal, and I didn't even know who he was. There were about six of us having oh, really? dinner. Yeah, I was, I was with uh, Frank Turek and a couple of his crowd, and, and, and I just got introduced to Mike. You know, and Mike was right on my right side. My wife was on my left side. And about two-thirds of the way through dinner, Frank uh, said, hey, Mike, tell Greg about your book. And that's when I realized that he was the author of a book that I owned and that I was a little bit familiar with. And so I had a lot of questions of him regarding his ideas. And one of them was on the issue of the image of God. Let me back up and talk about Bill Craig for a minute. There's a very, pardon me, a very important distinction here that I think needs to be made. Um, when William Lane Craig is talking about our rationality is a function of being in the image of God, he he is not saying that a rationality is the same as being in the image, and such, if you're not exercising rationality for some reason, then some, what, some part of the image is diminished, okay? So I'm going to fall back on some of the language here that J.P. Moreland was very helpful for, with, for me to understand this concept. Human beings um, are insouled beings, that means they have a body and a soul, and the soul is what is in the image of God because God does not have a physical body. The soul bears the imprint. And this image, whatever it is, and this is sometimes a little hard to figure out all the details, the best way I think to find out is to do it inductively and look at the ways that human beings are uniquely like God, and that is probably the ways in which they bear God's image, okay? Certainly not having a having being a, a soulish Self is not what is unique because animals have souls as well, but this bearing the image of God does. And one of those things that is unique about humans that is like God is their capability of being rational, and that involves a number of different things. But notice—actually, let me back up and say their capacity for being rational. Now, this is 
this is J.P. Moreland language. Souls have capacities. They're innate to the soul, and they're innate to anyone who has the image of God. But of course, as the physical body is developing, and the physical body is the agent through which, or the means through which the soul expresses its capacities, the body's got to develop a certain way before those innate capacities can be manifest, okay? So um, babies have the capacity for rationality because they are they are rational as made in the image of God, but they don't express that until their brains develop adequately to express it fully. So you have a soul that is made in the image of God with a whole host of capacities that are characteristic of being in the image of God, and these things are innate— They are not degreed, and they are not gained or lost. However, they need a body functioning in a certain way in order to express those inherent capacities that are part of being made in the image of God, okay? And so that's why you can have people that don't express that very well or lose the capability because their body has been damaged or their brain has been damaged, okay? But that doesn't mean they're any less in the image of God because their bodies cannot express the inherent capacities characteristic of a soul made in the image of God, okay? So I said a lot there. I don't know. I hope that makes sense to you. Yeah, so— um, so I, I, I'm looking at the example of a fetus, because of course that's uh, the abortion issue is, you know, front and center and very important. Exactly. And so you would say that at the moment of conception, that that human has the capacity for rationality. Sure, of course. What that, I would what I would say is at the moment of conception is when the human becomes a human. The comes right. into existence, and that's science. I mean, that's straight-up science, okay? Now, philosophically, mm-hmm. I'm going to add another dimension, and that is when they become a human, they become a whole human, and humans are ensouled bodies. And so when they are conceived, they are fully human, body and soul. And the soul is what ends up driving the development, ultimately, Okay, uh, now that's just controversial for physicalists, especially because they're going to say it's the biology. But um, there is a life force that's immaterial that's involved in the whole process. It used to be called an Elan Vital, but now they it's dismissed by materialists as the ghost in the machine. But it, it, it souls are real, nevertheless, and they're obviously real too. But that's another issue. But I'm just going on our worldview, the Christian worldview, and my convictions, just to clarify. When Bill Craig is talking about rational capabilities, those are descriptions of capabilities people have, and they have rational capabilities in varying degrees. He is not suggesting, I don't believe, that their image of God then is in varying degrees either. He's just saying that the ability to express that capacity is in degrees. Make sense? So you would make a distinction between capacity and potentiality then, right? Well, I, I would probably, for the sake of this discussion, because I would use them. I would, I would use them kind of synonymously. However, the word potential seems to suggest it's a, it's it's a weaker word. It seems to suggest that something could be there, but it's not yet. But maybe it will be sometime. 
its potential. Yeah. Like, you you know, maybe you have a potential to run the mile in six minutes, but, you know, that, but that's not actual. But doesn't the word capacity, doesn't the word capacity assume that it's already there? Yes. That's the, that's the distinction between capacity and potential. It is already there, but it has the potential to be expressed. Maybe that's a way to put that together. Okay. Now, I haven't talked about Heiser yet. I'm just talking about Bill Craig right, right now. Okay. Okay. So we, there's one distinction. Now, I haven't talked to Bill Craig about this particular issue, but I'm virtually certain he would agree with everything that I've said. Okay. Uh, because he sees the image of God in man as ontological. It is or metaphysical yes. as part of the being of man. It is not an extrinsic, instrumental value that gets added later. Okay, now let's go to Heiser. Heiser's got a very interesting take on this because he does see the image of God tied to roles in Scripture. There's no question there. Mm -hmm. But at this point, and because he was explaining this to me, and at this point— I asked him this question. Are you saying that the image of God is not ontological? And he said, no, I'm not saying that. So I take it from that, and I said, I, I said good, you know, because I, I, it seems to me so self-evidently clear it's ontological, because if it's, in other words, it's part of their being. Because if it's not ontological, then, it's, then, then uh, there can be humans that don't have it. And therefore can be treated as objects and not as valuable entities if being in, made in the image of God is what makes us valuable, which it is. And we get that from Hebrew, um, rather Genesis 9-6. If man sheds man's blood, by man his blood should be shed, for in the image of God, God created man. So our moral obligations to human beings are tied to us being in the image of God. And, and, and that isn't a, that isn't a, a functional status that we we do different things, um, that's not captured in that verse. It's simply based on our being, how we are made, and that strikes me as ontological. But I think what Heiser is doing is he's focusing in on an additional element of being made in the image of God, and that is a functional um, element that he describes in his book, um, I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but you know what it is. Unseen Realm? Yeah, right. Unseen World. So does that distinction—now, he might disagree with me at this point. I'm just recalling our conversation because I was very precise right. in asking that question. And and if he doesn't think that it's ontological, if push comes to shove and he said, no, you misunderstood me, then, then I'm going to just have to disagree with him. Because it strikes me as whatever it is, it's at least and minimally ontological. It may have all kinds of different ramifications in the ways that he describes in his book, Unseen World. But nevertheless, if it's not ontological, I think it evacuates humans from their native value, the intrinsic so value. Do you think it could be a status and be ontological? Do you think a status can be ontological? No, it, it could, did you ask, could it be a status but not be ontological, or did you say, could it be both? No, no. could it be ontological and be a status? Yes, it could, could be. That, could that's the kind of what I'm saying. part of it be the status? Well, 
It's got to be ontological. That's the ground. That's the foundation. That's right. the core. Okay. Now, how does that work itself out in God's economy? That's kind of the question. And so he has a way of working that out. There's a status element. There's a responsibilities that are involved with that and things we do and whatever. And I don't want to go t- get too far. I, I mean, I'm not a, um, I've read his book once, so I can't say I've really got the ideas down. So I, I don't want to um, misrepresent his view. But as far as you've described it as a, as a functional status, yes, I think that he would see that as entailed in it. But it's similar to the way I described earlier with Bill Craig. We have a an innate, ontologically fixed quality that is the image of God in man, which has certain capacities associated with it that allow us, under the right set of circumstances, to do different things. And I, I know maybe that's the way Mike would characterize it as well. Now, do you think by saying that that there's a danger in saying that a fetus isn't a human being then, if it's not exercising those capacities, or it can't even exercise those capacities? Wait, are you, uh, the danger is what? I didn't quite... The, with the fetus, the, the danger is that if we take a functional view, that the fetus isn't valuable if it's not exercising those. No, functions. not the not the functional view. The the fact that it that the ra- that it's a, a rational person, like that's the view that that um, Dr. Craig ties it to. It's a rational person. It you know that, that's the image of God. Okay, well it in is a person. Yes, yes. As long as you understand rational person to be describing an innate capacity. A quality right. that's what a capacity I'm saying is what, that that what may or may not express itself. Is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, if I if I understand, and, and I'm, I mean, I read his book, but I also saw him. He gave a talk on this, so that's a lot of what I'm basing this on. And he does actually say he doesn't think it's the the rationality that that is the base for the image of God. He, right. He would say that. Now, I, I I'm glad that you said that he thinks it's ontological, and I and I believe he says that. What I think his issue with it is, if you say that it's tied to something like rationality, even if it's a capacity, a fetus wouldn't be able to, or, you know, there's other examples, but a fetus wouldn't be able to exercise that capacity. Um, And so what makes it a human being then? Well, certainly the exercise of the capacity doesn't make it a human being. Let me give you an illustration right. that, that might be helpful. Let's say, so so you're a living human being, right? And as a living human mm-hmm. being, you can move. You can move your body, right? Yes. Okay, motion is characteristic of being a living human being. If you were not a living human being, you would not be able to move. You would be a dead human being, Right. <laughs> Or a dead corpse. Bill, J.P. Moreland would say you weren't, aren't even right. human anymore if you're dead. Okay, fine. Okay, but what if you couldn't move? What if you—let's just say for the sake of discussion, you are locked in and are immobile. Are you still alive and a human? I would think so. Yes, of course. I mean, it's easy to imagine you getting a shot of something— where you're just locked in and you can't move, all right? But that doesn't change the mm-hmm. fact that you're a human 
right? A living human. So the foundational factor in that illustration is being a living human, and incidental to that is the ability to move. Now, you couldn't move if you weren't a living human. But just because you can't move doesn't mean you're not a living human. In the same way, human beings are rational creatures. But that is a consequence of being made in the image of God. Even if we can't exercise our rationality for some reason at some point, doesn't mean we're not made in the image of God with a rational capacity that's not being expressed at that time. So the image of God is the foundation. And the other things that flow from the image of God um, are, are in varied degrees. They're dependent on the image of God, but they flow in different degrees based on other things, the environment, growth, uh, capabilities, mental acuity, all kinds of things. So that's the way I would characterize it. We spent a lot of time in this particular question, but it's an important did, one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's important to um, – in fact, we only got about six minutes left, so we should probably finish out here if we have any final things. There's not enough time to take another call, but I'll have next hour to get the rest of the callers here. But what I, what I appreciate about this conversation, um, Conrad, is first of all, your your curiosity about precision about these things and how they relate to applicational issues – like abortion, um, if well, and I think the reason that's key is, is I think the abortion issue is actually turning a little bit from, for the longest time, it's been it's just a clump of cells and and it's not a human and and we've known that's always not been true, but technology has shown more and more that that's not true, and I see the abortion issue switching to well, yeah, it is a human, but we still have the right to you I think you're right about do that. what we want to do oh absolutely that. absolutely this this is a um, this is the only one question idea that is foundational to my approach and stand to reason what is it and if it's a human like being yeah. okay and now there's been a move we don't care if it's a human being we still have the right to do what we want and take the life of that child it's my body my choice that's the slogan. All right, and I actually have a whole chapter on that in the book that I'm writing right now because this is being taken in a popular sense to a very new level. However, you cannot deal with the my body, my choice, or or the 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 right not to. Um, I'm trying to think of the way the, the 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 right not to have to assist. So I shouldn't have to give my body so somebody else can stay alive. You know, that, that's, uh, that's another side of this argument. Right to refuse is what they call it. I have a right to refuse using my body to keep somebody else alive. Okay, so, so those are the two avenues nowadays, and they both acknowledge the full humanity of the unborn. However, unless there are ways to respond to those challenges, but still at the foundation is the full humanity of the unborn. If the unborn isn't a real right. human being— then, then no justification for abortion is necessary, and it turns out answering those other objections, those other, those two other challenges, my body, my choice, and the right to refuse, actually trades on the reality, the actual reality, not just the mere lip service, but the actual reality of the child of, of the child being a valuable human being that is being produced by the mother who is the one who wants to take the life of that child. 
And so it does come back down to that foundation, but there are other nuances and, uh, and, and that have to be mm-hmm. pointed out, like um, uh, th- that have to do with the, the accuracy of the claim. It's my body, therefore it's my choice. It's not her body. It's a different body inside her body, for one. That's science, okay? Secondly, the body inside your body is not an invader. It's the child your own body is producing, and everybody knows this. You mentioned about science making advances, and that has been helpful. But 500 years ago, everybody knew this. The thing that's right. growing inside mom from the very moment it starts growing is mom's baby. And it's a human baby. And it's a separate individual. And it's mom's job to nurture and protect that baby. They didn't always choose to do it. Even in ancient times, they had abortions. But there was no question that they were killing a human baby out of personal convenience. And that's the same thing and that we I see happening. I think that's where we're, where we're heading, where people are going to say, you know what, yeah, it is a human, and that's where we need to adjust our arguments as well to defend the life yeah. of a human being and of a baby. Well, we're not heading there, Conrad. We're already there in spades. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah, true. and this has we been are, coming yeah. for a long time. I mean, Judith, Judith Jarvis Thompson, the philosopher who wrote uh, the, viol- the, the article about the violinist, she wrote that article in 1973. That was the year Roe versus Wade was passed. So that this and in that article, she basically makes the case that that even if the unborn is a valuable human being, we still have the right to refuse um, to to keep that baby alive. And she uses a, a yeah. world famous violinist that you, that a woman gets connected to, you know, whatever, as an illustration. But the, here's the deal on this, and just think about it. Um, if we accept the idea, and this may even be debatable, but if we accept the idea that a woman does have the right to refuse to act in such a way as to save the life of another human being. I mean, that to me is a huge step that we, if you have the opportunity to save a human life and you don't do it, um, it seems to me there's a, there's a, there's a nonfeasance um, culpability there that she's not doing something she ought to do. But let's just set that aside for the moment. Um, In the case of abortion, it is not the right to refuse aid. That's not what's going on. You can't just wa- refuse the giving life to the baby, providing life support for the baby, and move forward. You actually have to kill that baby. You can't just refuse. <laughs> if somebody else is dying and I could give, give a kidney or whatever to help them to stay alive, I can refuse to do that. That's not the same as killing the person. In this case, that's why this, by the way, is not a parallel. In this case, in order to refuse the baby that's growing inside the mother, the mother has to kill the baby. And that changes everything. By the way, I owe that insight to Josh Abram. Pardon me? I said it's active, not passive. Exactly. And and it's and it's and it's even it's even worse than that. Um uh, because there are times when you are passive regarding a child. If a child falls into a pool, and you're standing there as an adult, and the child is starting to drown, and you let that baby drown. You are being passive, but you have a moral obligation to rescue that baby, and that's actionable but under law if you let that baby drown. So even even passive 
even even being passive in certain circumstances can be morally culpable. But in this case, though, they're not being passive. They're being they're actively taking the life of the child in order to refuse to support the child. That is an entirely different kind of thing. And uh, so I, I actually developed that idea more in the book. It's a new concept to me. I just discovered this a couple of months ago, and I, I think I just mentioned that Josh Abram was the with the Human Rights Institute, I think the name of their group, is uh, where I got that information from. Um, I don't know Josh, really. I just had some email exchanges, but he's been interviewed on this radio show by one of my colleagues So uh, when I wasn't around, but that's been a very, that's a very helpful thing. Conrad, thanks so much for the call. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was, it was a great conversation. I appreciate your call. So, uh, okay, um, thank you. Take care. Okay, all the best to you. And uh, so we're we're just out of time here at the top of the hour now. But uh, um, that was a great, I think, interaction because it touched on things that are critical to understanding the nature of being human. I almost said the biblical view of the nature of being human, but I don't think it's just, it's the biblical view because it's a reflection of reality. And for a lot of these things, you don't need a Bible to figure this out. You just have to pay attention to what's real. All right. That's it for this hour, friends. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. All right. Bye-bye now.